have to wait for business-facing AI to be profitable. Motley Fool Money starts now. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. I'm Deidre Willard here with Bill Barker. Today, we're going to look at some recent results through the window of everyone's kind of favorite subject, AI. How are you doing today, Bill? I'm well, thanks. Well, Bill, we've talked a lot about AI on this show. You know, it's it's the story of the year. We've got massive profits, massive stock increases. I've been kind of doing a Tech, tu- a tech Tuesday, Tech Thursday, this, uh, but this week it's kind of different because we could talk a little bit about some unprofitable tech. We've had three companies report recently that I would say they have a valid claim to an AI use case. You've got Asana, C3AI, and UiPath. So none of those are exactly household names, right? They're all in the business of selling AI services to other companies. But my concern is, and I'm really eager to get your take on this, I've talked with some analysts about the potential for overspend on both sides because you've got buyers out there, companies. They feel like they need to spend everything on AI to be kind of like with it. And then on the other side, you've got the companies that feel like they have to offer something or anything AI to, you know, to to be part of the conversation. So is this a recipe for uh, an AI bubble, an AI disaster? What do you think? Well, I guess I would go back to something you said uh, initially is uh, that there have been some massive profits. Uh, And and there have been relatively few companies that have realized massive profits uh, from AI. There are plenty of stocks that that have done massively well this year, and uh, certainly NVIDIA is pocketing real money by uh, providing the sort of picks and shovels of all the AI work that's going on. So, where do you have the recipe for a poppable bubble uh, is, I think, when the actual profitability becomes completely untethered uh, from the stock movements, right? Mm -hmm. The stocks can anticipate profits and price those into stocks. And when the profits don't actually appear, uh, then sooner or later, the, the air is going to go out of uh, out of a bubble. So uh, that I would say is the recipe. It's early uh, to declare that there are you know overestimated profits for AI, or that those profits are expected to be too soon. Uh, but that's that's where the bubble would pop. Yeah, the 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 sooner or later part I think is is the part that gets uh, you know we don't really know where we are in the cycle at this point. No, we're certainly in the hype cycle. Yes, and and there's some reason to be in the hype. That hype, the early days of dot com, the internet bubble. There, there was plenty of hype. There was plenty that got realized over time, in a lot of ways. But uh, the hype came before the profits, and uh, the companies that ultimately delivered a profitable business model. Uh, are many times the size that they were back then, but there were many others that uh, never got to profitability. Well, and that's and that's really the the, the important part here. I want to start uh, with Asana. This is a work productivity platform, which you know AI and work productivity that makes a certain sense. They've had they have this thing called the work graph. It's their single point of truth. They call it for for work. They say they can add. AI to this as sort of a kind of like a work wrangler. It puts things together. It makes suggestions. All of that makes sense. But Asana isn't at its core an AI company. So if you're an investor in Asana, you've got some AI aspirations here. But this again, it's a company that's not profitable. How do you factor in the AI points? Well, I would start by 
being uh, discounting the uh, application of the single point of truth, which sounds religious to me. Uh, it, <laughs> okay. it's, it's, I get it as a sales pitch, and it would be great if there were some single point of truth in any aspect of life. So, I understand why that is a, a goal uh, for them to develop, but I don't think they'll ever get there uh, on that. And uh, I think that uh, investors you know, can look at, all right, the AI here, you've got Asana intelligence as a small part of Asana as a whole. I think they're mostly, you know, more in the me too category of mm -hmm. we've got some AI, uh, then, you know, this is, this is an AI company. And they've gotten some of the benefits of going along with the, the we're in this group too. Uh, but it, it's, you know, that's more of a stock movement than, the actual uh, company's business, which is growing at a healthy clip, but not as healthy as it used to be. Uh, this is sort of the law of large numbers. When you're growing the top line at uh, you know the high teens, which is where they are now, it's just a different valuation multiple than where the company had been set you know years ago. Well, yeah, and, and like other tech companies that we've talked about, they're having the same problem of the slowing macro cycle, and you know it's taking longer to close deals. We've we've seen that for like about a year. But you mentioned something about the like the we're in this too thing that I want to talk about because you've got a CEO Dustin, Dustin Moskovitz, right? He's got the cred. He's been in Silicon Valley for forever. He's you know one of the founders of Facebook. And he was talking on the earnings call about having this kind of advantage when it comes to AI because he he knows all the players. You know, it's it's in their backyard. Is that is that really the advantage that he's making it out to be? I don't know. Not having spent the time in Silicon Valley, that he spent. <laughs> yes. I, I I'm going to speculate. So I've I've uh, put a spotlight on the fact that uh, this opinion should be discounted uh, through that light. Uh, you, you know, that's where plenty of the talent that you would want to hire uh, is. But do the do you need? And is the talent staying there or going around the country to work? Uh, I don't know that you have to do your shopping uh, for the best coders in Silicon Valley today the way you did five years ago. But having uh, frequent interactions with intelligent people who are invested and know the field and know where they think it's going uh, has got to be a bit of a competitive advantage, but a competitive advantage against lots and lots of other companies that can pretty much say the same thing, I would think. Yeah, I think that's true. And one of the things I've been thinking about from a real estate perspective and just from an overall perspective of there was the, the previous belief was that you had to be in Silicon Valley, and then it seemed to be less that way. Sort of the OGs of tech are saying that that's the case now again for AI. And I, I kind of have my skeptical hat on about that. Yeah, if if all the ones saying it are the ones in Silicon Valley, then you need <laughs> well, to yeah. discount the degree to which that must be true. Because I'm sure that there are others who are outside of Silicon Valley who are saying, "No, you know, we're we're doing great uh, without being subject to Silicon Valley real estate prices and the you know the troubles of of living there, and we uh, are out." Finding talent throughout the world, so I think that it is. I, if, look, if I wanted to learn more about AI, I would probably find myself in Silicon Valley talking to people out there. There, there's something to it, 
but you know ultimately it shows up in the numbers and if it doesn't show up in the numbers you know you can keep selling that story but that's all it is Asana also they they said this phrase a couple of times that they want to move up market. So up market, I always get a little bit worried about up market because I know it's always harder to go up market than it is to go down market. It feels like they're going to spend a lot of money. Uh, they, they've had some wins on this. They had a major cybersecurity platform they said is switching to Asana. They talked about some some other big wins. But starting out small, how hard is it going to be for them to get bigger and get those bigger and bigger companies? I'm worried that they're going to spend a lot of time, a lot of money trying to capture those big dogs and make and get them to switch. Well, ultimately, you're right. It's about how much they're spending in pursuit of this. Now, they are having some success from the last quarter. The number of customers with annual spend above $5,000 was 20000 plus customers that grew 15% uh, annual spend over a hundred thousand dollars increased 20% so that did increase uh, a bit faster to 550 some so that's where they're targeting if they pull it off the uh, bigger customers especially you know a, a large base of big customers is great for the business uh, but they've got for you know for every Customer who's spending a hundred thousand, they've got uh, you know forty that are spending you know only, uh, well somewhere above five thousand. So I, I think it makes sense to pursue it, uh, but if uh, if it doesn't, as we've sort of come back to a few times, if it doesn't show up on the bottom line uh, sooner or later, then it's not you know the right strategy. They they need to get to profitability. Yeah, that the the path to profitability thing is is kind of what I wanted to focus on today because AI is just sort of like I I worry that it's a little bit of a smokescreen for people and that it's sort of like well we're gonna we're gonna be more profitable now and you know I want to talk a little bit about C three AI because I feel like this is one of those stories. They kind of should. They should have that AI advantage. They've gotten, you know, for good reason, a lot of the AI hype. They were doing AI enterprise before a lot of other companies. I mean, come on, their ticker's AI. Then they've got good contracts. They've got, you know, contracts with the Department of Defense. They've, they're working with the major cloud providers. But this profitability question, and they talked about in in their earnings that. They're going to turn from focusing on profitability, on getting to that the gap profitability. To investing in generative AI, so does that worry you? It's it seems like it seems like they're just they're sort of like pushed off that date quite a bit. It's not a get out of jail free card, <laughs> right? Um, and and to the extent that uh, managements there or anywhere else think think that it is, uh, they'll they'll learn the lesson um, over time. Uh, you know, a C three AI. Actually, has more, you know, of a justifiable story that hey, we're going to focus on all of the potential of AI uh, than than many others. That is their their game. Uh, so I think that what it does when you say, as they have, well, we're we're pushing off the profitability that we thought we could hit on whatever an adjusted basis, you know, this quarter, fourth quarter, something like that. And we're no longer going to pursue that. Is they're telling you we're we're uh, we're raising the ceiling, uh, but we're also lowering the floor on mm -hmm. where things could go. If if you're profitable, and and have a predictable uh, 
continuation of your profitability, you've got a floor under what can what can happen uh, with your business and your stock. If you never get there, you may go crashing through the floor. But you know they're in the, they're in the AI game. The ceiling's very high. Uh, it makes sense to pursue the ceiling. The the market. On one day, you know, sort of took the stock down, uh, whatever it was, fifteen ish percent or yeah. so. Uh, but stocks up, stocks almost tripled this year. So they're they're playing with house money, and if they can't get to profitability reasonably quickly uh, on the business side of things, uh, you know, with the stock having virtually tripled, there's a, a path to a secondary. If they need to raise cash, this is a good. Market to raise cash through an increased stock price. You know they don't have a lot of debt, so they've got you know they've got runway, they've got time. It's just a question of you know at some point does does everybody get a little a little impatient with it? Certainly the 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 drop indicates that there is definitely some impatience. There are a lot of people online, you know you know the the, the chatter that happens online after after results, and there there seems to be a lot of impatience with this one. Yeah, some impatience with this one. Um, it's 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 way up from where it was at the beginning of the year, yeah. and so as I say, there's a little bit of house money to play with there uh, in terms of well, we can take a twenty percent hit to the stock, and everybody's still going to be happy. Who's been along for the ride this year? Look, over the long term, C three AI is still down, you know, seventy percent or whatever it is from its high back in. 2001, um, but in the recent past, they're in the right spot, having AI as their business in their name as their ticker. They've reaped some of the rewards from that. They haven't turned it into a profitable business as of yet. But there's, I think, there's a little bit of a leash for all of the companies that uh, you know are in the AI space right now, uh, and it's. Uh, Incumbent upon them to deliver what they have promised, uh, you know, over the next quarter, I think, and and not to back further away from the profitability uh, picture. Yeah, there's there's only so far you can you can push that question off. It it is going to come back up, and it's interesting, you know, um, this thinking about earnings and results this season. Um, you know, I'm hearing these two things from business to business companies. The one is like. We're more responsible now. We're focused on on profitability, and we're cutting costs. And we've seen certainly the impact of of tech layoffs and things like that. But I'm also hearing that the like we're going to spend a lot on and on AI. And so with we've got C3 AI, Asana, and UiPath. All of their earnings were sort of like, you know, like profitability will come, but don't worry about it. So it, all of these companies have been public for three years or less. Does it make sense to give them that pass uh, in order to let them? You know, really have that runway, and and at what point do you think that runway stops? Is there a point in the cycle when all of a sudden those bills come due? It feels like it it happened a little bit with other companies. Uh, you know, Meta kind of comes to mind on that. At some point, investors just get impatient, right? Yeah, if you're talking about the three year horizon that these companies have been around, going back three years ago, uh, two and a half, three years, there was a complete pass on on. Profitability at that point in time, and that's when the market peaked uh, in 2001, especially for the Nasdaq companies. Today, a lot of uh, companies have had to find religion on profitability, mm. but 
AI is like a special use case, you know. <laughs> yes. So it's a, it's a bit of a fair fight between the promise of these huge piles of gold that somebody is going to land upon in in AI, and maybe um, maybe many companies, but uh, they all got priced uh, at points this year as if all of them would land upon a pile of gold and. They're not all going to. Uh, I'm not saying that these three won't in some respect, but it's still, I think, a lot of hope in all these uh, companies, and they're they're not being priced on traditional valuation metrics yet. Yeah, good point, and and reasons to be cautious. Yeah, and you can you can you can play this game focusing on the profits. Now, Nvidia got profits, but I mean the multiple on those profits is rather eye-opening. Uh, so whether simply getting uh, and and profits that are growing fast, you can you can come up with a mathematical equation to kind of justify uh, that price, and the it's still trading quite close to its all-time high. So you can you can focus simply on companies that. Uh, are profitable if you want, and still be exposed to uh, some upside. Certainly, in the case of Nvidia, plenty of upside this year. Um, you know, and and the others that are that are also engaged in in uh, you know the use of of AI at a high level. They're not the small caps that that we're talking about here, which have a ceiling, which is you know three, four, five, six times the stock price. We know the ceiling's at least that high because they've all been three, four, five times <laughs> the, the price they are right now. Um, so, if a sufficient amount of people get excited as we're excited three years ago in, you know, unlimited growth, then maybe they get back to those prices someday. Awesome! Thank you for your time today, Bill. Thank you. You may have heard the phrase expectations investing, but what does it really mean? Asit Sharma and Ricky Mulvey kick off a two-part series on the topic. So, Asit, we're going to put some growth cases of companies maybe a bit on trial for the listener. And we're going to do that through this, this framework called expectations investing. We're first going to give the framework, and then we're going to use that with some practical applications with four companies. So, this segment, you're going to hear the intro, and then over the weekend, we'll get to dive in with some of those case studies. First, Asit, can you just provide an introduction to expectations investing to maybe a listener who's never heard of it before? Absolutely, Ricky. And first, I beg listeners, lower your expectations. But this is a style of investing that is most associated with Michael Mobison, who's a very famous investor and analyst, theoretician. He wrote a book with Alfred Rappaport, uh, another academic, called Expectations Investing. And this is more the fruition, I think, of his life's work in investing, is how to understand how companies should be valued by the individual investor. I'm actually going to read you uh, an excerpt from the second chapter of the book, Expectations Investing, which is very interesting. Ask you for reflection. I think that'll be a good jumping off point to understand how this works. Here we go. Traditional discounted cash flow analysis requires you to forecast cash flows to estimate a stock's value. Expectations investing reverses the process. It starts with the stock price, a rich 
and underutilized source of information and determines the cash flow expectations that justify that price. I think it's interesting because it assumes that the market is a bit efficient, right? Then a lot of stock investors would like to perhaps admit. And I also think that there's a part of my brain that is, you know, I'm kind of lazy. I don't want to add this extra step. I don't even like doing a discounted cash flow model. So so you're adding more work for me? What the heck? Totally. I actually think this suits the lazy personality more than a DCF model. But let's talk about what you alighted on. I think that's so important. This book posits that the stock price is a rich source of information. There's a lot that's reflected in there. Different investors with different tools have all come together in a marketplace. And as a communal exercise, they've assigned a price in the market to a stock. So theoretically, if there's a lot of good information out there, and there are a lot of knowledgeable people with good tools who are assessing stock price, and they have a balance of supply and demand, that price should represent some very decent cooperative assumptions. And what this book is saying that is that yes, if you build up a traditional idea of cash flows, try to ascertain what all those future cash flows are worth, and then discount them back to the present value. That's a worthy exercise, and a large part of the investment community does it. But you can also do the opposite. Start with that stock price, work backwards, and ask, okay, what are the assumptions behind this? How long will it take for the cash flows to justify this stock price? What's driving the stock price, the assumptions that everyone is building in? And the book takes you back to some really fundamental basics. It identifies three main value drivers, which are easy for even the most novice of investors to understand. Sales growth, the rate of sales growth, is a driver of value. Operating profit, so the margin, margin percentage, how much money you make off of each sales dollar, drives value. And incremental investment, the rate of investment. How much do you need to invest in fixed assets and working capital to drive that next dollar of sales or next dollar of profits? These simple concepts, if you understand them, can give you an edge in investing. Why? Because Mobison and Rappaport also say that at some point, the crowd is going to revise its expectations of a business based on how these value drivers are changing. And you, as the practitioner of expectations investing, can get ahead of that game by studying what's really moving the business and projecting that there's going to be a revision in the market's expectations and therefore a revision in the price. Yeah, I think what's interesting about that, even if you don't go into any of the frameworks that Mobison describes, is there's this, uh, it implores one to start from a neutral position. Don't seek to say, you know, what are, uh, what's this company going to do in the future, but rather, okay, what is baked into the assumptions by the market right now? And then you can, then you can make a judgment perhaps about what this, uh, what your rate of return is, what your, yeah, what the rate of return is relative to the cost of capital moving forward. I like that because if you take it the other way, so if you do the discounted cash flow model, you're actually put uncomfortably in the other position, which is you are building inputs and assumptions to try to 
project cash flows out into the future. You become sort of a non-neutral observer in that exercise. Whether you like it or not, you're making a ton of decisions about what the company will do to build your model up. And that is a worthy exercise, as I said. But in this view of things, you can be a little more imprecise. If, if you're focused more on what pushes the business, what drives those dollars, and how that impacts how other investors will see the stock price, let's say, a year or two or three from today, to me, it's again, it's better for people who want to understand why a business should be valued from its resources, how it applies its capital, than the DCF, which, again, you can spend a lot of time on and be very wrong the more inputs you need to build. And we'll get into this. When we talk about some specific companies, we can contrast and compare these two ways of looking at life. Okay. Well, one thing that uh, Mobison has said on on some podcasts is that investors have to earn the right then to use yardsticks like a price to earnings multiple or an enterprise value uh, to EBITDA multiple earnings before interest taxes, depreciation, and amortization. How do you think investors earn that right if they if they want to practice this expectations investing approach? Earning the right. To use the multiples is pretty simple. If you simply dig in using the why question, you're on your way to, to earning that right. And I do agree with him. I have been guilty in the past, earlier in my investing career, of looking at companies in wildly different industries with wildly different balance sheets, different capital structures, and just assigning one ratio, let's say a forward PE ratio, so take one year's forward earnings look at the price in relation to that, and assess, is this reasonably valued? Is it expensive? Is it cheap? You know, I've, I've taken like old growth industries versus startup-type IPO companies and said to myself, well, this one has such a high P-E ratio, it's obviously overvalued. <laughs> so, I think for most investors, understanding the, the top of the the valuation metric and the bottom is so important and I'll I'll go to my old saw Ricky you've heard me talk about this one before return on invested capital is posited by lots of investors as being a really simple and grounded and rational way to look at a company compare the price uh, to its return on invested capital the potential to produce incremental dollars on your investments I think it's one of the most complicated metrics out there because understanding why a company has gotten to this point in its invested capital base or how it's developed that return, what that looks like in the future, isn't as simple as it looks. And just taking that metric and saying, this company has a high ROIC or a low ROIC without context is really hard. So, bottom line, when you start putting context around a ratio, you're already earning that right. Never yeah. take them in isolation. I always think I think we're seeing this in some cases as investors in 2023 perhaps become a bit more cranky and impatient than they were maybe before the pandemic. That a lot of these uh, uh, growthy companies may say, you know, don't judge us based on our uh, price to earnings multiple or our uh, ability to. Become profitable because we're still a very uh, we're still a early stage growth company in comparison, 
And there's now this, this huge disconnect between the investors that may be saying, you know what? No, the cost of capital is higher. My expectations have changed and you need to get profitable immediately. Yeah, I mean, for sure, that that's maybe the obverse case of, of what I was saying, but it's totally true. Investors look at how you invest your capital, depending on the interest rate environment. Also, I mean, as, as we've all seen, that has an effect. You're going to require something different out of a company. And when the value of those future dollars decreases because of inflation, interest rates, then you get a little more impatient. So, so that can certainly cut that way as well. So, are there any maybe less common metrics that expectations investors like to use in order to get an understanding of a, of a company's value? I think for expectations investing style investors, it's less about specific metrics and more about just building a very simple spreadsheet, not too dissimilar. I mean, in theory, from a reverse DCF, where you stack these components, you you look at revenue, you look at the costs that are associated with that revenue, you derive free cash flow, you see what reinvestment looks like, and then you go to the next year. And so you're building year by year the value of the company, and you're also playing with what's called the price implied forecast period. So let's let's break that down. Now in traditional DCF models, there's something called a forecast period. So that's the time that the market expects a company to generate its returns on the incremental capital it invests. And you'll see there's always a point in DCF models, like five years or ten years, where the rest is all into perpetuity. And, and then you lump those cash flows together, discount them back. Uh, this is interesting again. I think that expectations investing is is so much geared towards a layperson's idea of how the world works and in investing. My idea, the concept is so much simpler. It's saying, look, all right, there's a price out there for a stock, right? And this company is going to throw off cash flows for many, many years. So, how many years is it going to take for the cash flows to justify the current stock price? When you build a spreadsheet out in expectations investing, more than looking at metrics, that's Really, your starting point is to figure out, okay, I'm at seven years here of, of this company's projected cash flows when I discount those back for it to justify what I'm paying today. But <laughs> I also know some other things about this business. I actually think they can get that return faster. They can justify that stock price faster. So if I buy the company today, I've got an edge over competitors. So, so this might be the, the way. A, an expectations investing type personality looks at future cash flows versus maybe you know pulling a metric uh, for for easy use. So I think that's a good place to stop for the introduction. On Saturday, we're going to have a, a full show with case studies. We're going to move from General Motors all the way to Nvidia to see how the expectations investing framework can help investors understand where those companies are currently at. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Deidre Woolard. Thank you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.